0: Welcome to Mind and Soul Matters. We're excited to share with you the third and final part of our mental health forum series on exploring social justice. The first in these series looked at the challenges faced by those with mental health issues in the criminal justice system. And in the second episode, Peter shared his personal experience of being in prison for many years, how he overcame a traumatic past and went on to establish Shalom House to help others. I will leave the introduction of today's episode to Dr. Dina Ashurian, MC of the forum. Enjoy this very informative and eye-opening presentation on human rights and mental health.
1: I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today, the Wajak Nunga people and their families, and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and sky. We pay our respects to the elders, both past, present, and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge the Melville Baha'i community for hosting today's event, and the Baha'i Center of Learning for offering the venue for today's program. Today's forum has a focus on social justice and its impact on mental health. You might have heard the phrase, social determinants of health, It's the idea that social factors such as poverty, access to education, where you live and whether you face discrimination, have a huge influence on your health, whether it's physical health or mental health. These determinants explain why worse health outcomes persist for some groups of people, despite incredible advances in medical care. This understanding has somewhat helped improve health policy in Australia and overseas. However, we still have a long way to go. These social determinants can also impact one's life trajectory in relation to more serious mental health conditions, such as addictions and suicide and possibly criminal activities. Our panelists today each have had vast experience with the social determinants of mental illness through their day-to-day work over many years. Dr. Vipke Timmerman is going to come up in a minute. Vipke is a criminal lawyer at WA Legal Aid. Before coming to Australia, she worked on cases involving war crimes. From 2006 until 2008, She worked as a legal officer at the special department for war crimes at the prosecutor's office of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Before that, she spent a year working at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. She completed her PhD on the topics of incitement and hate speech in international law and has published a book as well as various articles and book chapters on these topics. So please welcome Wibke.
0: Thank you, Dina. So again, I'm not an expert in mental health by any means, but I have had clients and witnesses that I've interviewed who have suffered from trauma and mental health issues. And I want to look at today how violations of human rights and worse, for example, crimes against humanity and genocide might impact on and be linked with people's mental health. So today's session is about social justice and human rights are clearly connected to social justice, but they have a slightly different focus. On the one hand, they are connected in that in a socially just society, human rights are respected and discrimination would not be allowed to flourish people would be treated with fairness and have equal rights. A society, on the other hand, which favors people of a particular race or religion or ethnicity would clearly not be socially just. On the other hand, the focus of much of the social justice movement is to challenge unjust structures, support poor and vulnerable communities, and focus on community development. The human rights approach is slightly different. It focuses more on accountability for human rights violations and protects human rights for all, not just the poor. Now human rights at their most basic core are the rights owing to human beings by virtue of their humanity. The origins of human rights can be found way back in religious codes and also in philosophies such as the Stoic philosophers' writings. However, the first global human rights document is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. This was following the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust, and countries recognized the need for protection of human rights in international law. And the idea emerged that the protection of human rights was a concern of the international community as a whole, and it should not be left to individual countries, and they should not be allowed to treat their citizens or other people within their borders in whatever way they wanted. Since the end of World War II, Human rights have been laid down in many treaties between countries and also in countries' constitutions, of course. Such treaties impose legally binding obligations on member states to protect, respect, and fulfill the rights contained therein. Some examples of human rights are the right not to be discriminated against, the right of freedom of speech, the right to be free from torture on human or degrading treatment, the right to a fair trial, and so forth. Now, these are called civil and political rights. There are other rights, which are called economic, social, and cultural rights. And these include, for example, the right to work, the right to health, and the right to health includes, importantly for us, the right to mental health. So for instance, Article 12 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which is one of those treaties, guarantees everyone the right to the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health." So this was already written in 1966. At that time, already it was recognized that mental health was important. Now, that was human rights. The other thing that happened after World War II is that international criminal law came to the fore. The terms crimes against humanity and genocide were coined at the time. Crimes against humanity was a term meant to express that there are some crimes which were so horrendous and beyond the pale that they represented an affront to all of humanity. So this meant essentially crimes such as persecution, extermination, slavery, murder, and so forth, when they're committed in a particular context. And that context was that they're committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack against civilians. Since that time, crimes against humanity and genocide have been widely recognized as international crimes. And this means that individuals who do these acts can be prosecuted and punished by other countries and by courts such as the International Criminal Court. So we've got human rights and international crimes. The difference is that international crimes are committed by individuals. And these individuals can be prosecuted, as I said, by other countries or by certain international criminal tribunals. Human rights are owed by states to the people within that state's borders. If someone's rights are denied in a particular state, then they can complain to that state and the state has a duty to make sure that their rights are protected and that they maybe get compensation for what happened to them. If the state doesn't do it, they can potentially take it to the UN human rights bodies. Now, what happens when human rights are violated or international crimes committed? How does it affect people's mental health? Violations or denial of human rights can and often has a significant damaging and harmful impact on victims' mental health. People's mental health is to a large extent dependent on their ability to enjoy various human rights. The World Health Organization has recognized this. They have recognized that there's a link between poverty, unemployment, low levels of education, shelter, and access to healthcare. all of which, of course, involve the denial of various human rights, such as the right to work, the right to health, etc. So they said there's a link between that and increased risk of mental health disorders. Not having those rights respected or those needs met limits people's ability to be active and productive members of society, to realize their potential and stay physically and mentally healthy. Again, the denial of the other types of rights that I spoke about, civil and political rights, so for example, the right to vote, the right to express one's opinion, freedom of association, also limit when they are restricted, these rights, that also limits an individual's ability to participate fully and actively in the community. To take part in decision-making processes which affect their lives and to seek to improve their economic or social situation and that has a significant impact on their mental health. Now when these denials of rights are even worse during times of conflict or war they may amount to international crimes such as crimes against humanity or war crimes and the impact on victims mental health is likely to be much worse. The loss of loved ones and exposure to extreme forms of violence lead to post-traumatic stress disorders and other long-term mental health problems, such as depression, anxiety, and others. And it causes significant long-lasting trauma. I saw a personal example. I spent some time on a kibbutz in Israel when I was younger. I worked there as a volunteer. A kibbutz is a socialist type of community. And there were several Holocaust survivors who had survived the death camps. And one lady in particular would collect large amounts of food in the dining hall and take them to her house and they would rot because she wasn't couldn't possibly eat it but that trauma that she'd suffered the starvation that she'd suffered was still there and she just couldn't get over it so people would have to go into her house and get rid of all the rotten food now in how far has international law recognized the importance of mental health Looking at human rights law, as I noted before, the right to enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health is guaranteed in Article 12 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. There are also other treaties, but I'll leave them aside for now. The Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which is a committee that was established under that treaty to oversee the implementation of the treaty and to interpret its provisions, has clarified what that means. They've said that the notion of highest attainable standard of health must take into account both an individual situation and a state's available resources. So obviously a state that doesn't have a lot of resources can't be expected to fulfill the right to health to the same extent as a country that's very rich. Also, there are some aspects which uh, a state has no control over, such as genetic factors in individuals or where individuals adopt unhealthy or risky lifestyles. Therefore, the right to health, both physical and mental, they've said, must be understood as a right to the enjoyment of a variety of facilities, goods, services and conditions which are necessary for the realization of the highest attainable standard of mental health. Countries which have ratified this treaty, which importantly includes Australia, have the obligation to achieve the rights in it, including the right to mental health, through what is called progressive realisation. This means that it doesn't all have to be immediate, but there is an obligation to move as quickly and effectively as possible towards the full realisation of the right to health, including mental health. One thing that there must never be is discrimination, however. There can never be discrimination on the basis of certain factors such as race, religion, etc. There must be equal treatment in the health services which the state provides to people. Now the content of the right to mental health includes certain elements. There must be sufficient numbers of functioning public health and healthcare facilities, good services and programs. They must be accessible and affordable to everyone without discrimination. They must be respectful of medical ethics and culturally appropriate, and they must be medically appropriate and of good quality. So there must be skilled medical personnel. More recently, while generally speaking, the UN has always spoken about physical and mental health together. More recently, they've focused more on mental health. For example, in 2017, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights issued a report on mental health and human rights. They emphasized that the right to mental health is as important as the right to physical health and that the two are closely interrelated. They also identified some of the major challenges faced by users of mental health services and persons with mental health conditions around the world, and these included stigma and discrimination. For example, they found that in some countries, mental health issues are seen as evidence of personal weakness or that such conditions originate in witchcraft or that those with mental health conditions are incapable of contributing positively to society. They also note a link between poor mental health and poverty, and they were particularly concerned about the forced institutionalization of people with mental health issues and with psychosocial disabilities, which they found are often subjected to forced institutionalization. This, they said, incurred an increased risk of trauma, particularly in children in residential and institutional care. In some such institutions, certain practices, including solitary confinement, forced medication, use of restraints and so forth, they said constituted ill treatment and may even amount to torture. As a result, they recommended several policy shifts, including measures to improve the quality of mental health service delivery and to put an end to involuntary treatment and institutionalization. And importantly, they said there are very few countries around the world that appropriately supply mental health services to their citizens or the people in that country. I'd now like to turn to international criminal law which has also recognized the seriousness of harm to an individual's mental health in certain situations, particularly where it is done intentionally. And I want to look at two specific international crimes, torture and genocide. Now torture is of course also a violation when it happens. It's also a violation of the human right to be free from torture in human or degrading treatment. So it's also a human right concern. So, for example, if a prisoner is tortured, that is a violation of their right to be free from such treatment and they should be able to make a complaint about that. However, when the torture is committed in a particular context, if it is part of a systematic or widespread policy or attack against civilians, it is then also a crime against humanity. Provided certain conditions are met, the person who commits that torture can then be brought before the International Criminal Court or any country which they enter would be able to prosecute them and punish them. Torture is defined as the infliction of severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental. It must be done for a certain purpose, which includes, for example, obtaining information or confession or punishment, intimidation. So importantly, torture can be purely mental suffering. It doesn't need to be physical. And the international tribunals have held that it may include things such as threats to torture, rape or kill relatives, threats to kill or rape, exposure to excessive light or noise, prolonged denial of rest or sleep, total isolation, sensory deprivation, being kept in constant uncertainty in terms of space and time, total abandonment or simulated executions. And the important thing is that the prohibition of torture is absolute in international law and there are absolutely no exceptions. And if a person who is threatened with torture in another country comes to Australia, Australia must under no circumstances return that person to that country. The last thing I'll briefly look at is genocide. Genocide is of course, as most people would know, also an international crime. And it's defined as certain acts which include killing but also others which are done with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethnic racial or religious group now importantly for us one of the ways in which genocide can be committed is by causing serious mental harm to members of a group a religious racial ethnic etc group causing serious mental harm means that the acts must result in a grave and long-term disadvantage to a person's ability to lead a normal and constructive life. So the harm must be of such a serious nature as to contribute or tend to contribute to the destruction of that group. The International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, which dealt with the conflict in the former Yugoslavia, has found that there was a genocide committed in Srebrenica. And several acts that were done there they found constituted causing serious mental harm to members of the group. That was, for example, the psychological trauma resulting from witnessing acts of violence inflicted by others, the survivors of killing operations in the former Yugoslavia and what they experienced during those killing operations, The mental harm suffered by the Bosnian Muslim women, children, and elderly who were forcibly transferred from Srebrenica, including the painful separation process from their male relatives who would then go on to be killed, the fear and uncertainty as to their own fate or that of their detained male relatives, and the killing of their male relatives that they experienced. Threats of death was also considered to be an act of genocide that caused serious mental harm and knowledge of impending death. So during the wars in the former Yugoslavia, the Bosnian Serb forces would detain Bosnian Muslim men prior to their execution, and they found that the mental harm suffered knowing that would be executed also constituted such harm. And I will leave it there because I think I'm already well over time.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Vibka, for helping us understand the link between violation of human rights and mental well-being and international crimes that are still occurring in this day and age, unfortunately, as today we're sitting here, there's a lot going on as far as international crimes and violation of human rights go. So thank you for that.